Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have a special episode for you today. On this one, only one guest. Now, I've made no secret over the years that Joe R. Lansdale is one of my absolute favorite writers. So when I had the chance to talk to him about his new novel, Moon Lake, and his entire storied career, I knew I wanted to take a little longer and really get into it with him. Joe Lansdale is the prolific author of the Happen Leonard series, dozens of standalone novels, hundreds of short stories. He's written in crime, horror, western, and some genres that can really only be described as Lansdalian, I guess. He is a fascinating character who brings his home of East Texas to life in every book. And if you haven't gotten on board with reading him, well, now is the time. I sincerely wish I could go back and read many of his books for the first time again. So I'll shut up and get out of the way so you can enjoy my full-length conversation with the one and only Joe R. Lansdale. Joe, this is the first time in my three-year history of writer types I am devoting an entire episode to one author, and I couldn't think of anyone better than you, sir. Uh, on the occasion of Moon Lake, uh, I... I I can't even name what number novel this is. There are too, too many to, to mention, but you have a body of work, sir. I do have a body of work. I think this is about 49 <laughs> or 50 novels. Yeah. That, that is impressive and uh, something for the rest of us to aspire to. So uh, my first question then, uh, though, is how the heck do I make this thing fit on my shelf here? Because <laughs> if you look behind Ow. me... This entire row is all you. It bleeds into this one. There's a big stack up here. I'm running out wow. of space. You got to slow down, Joe. Yeah, I know. I do. I, maybe uh, I'm on my 70th birthday, which is in October, I'll start slowing down. <laughs> okay. That's, uh, you know, I, I say that now, but then, uh, you know, six months after you slow down, I'll be knocking on the door and saying, when's the next book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've got some more. I've got, I've got more in progress, so we're good there. At least for a while. Yes, I'm sure. Well, okay, Moon Lake, again, plums the, the darker depths of East Texas, where it, it seems every small town that you either discover or make up in that region uh, has a whole lot of buried secrets. Is, yeah. is that, are you just reflecting the, the real life of, of what you grew up in and, and where you live? Well, I often find that there are a lot of secrets and a lot of things that people don't always know about. But of course, if you're writing novels that frequently have crime content, then you're going to have a, a lot more of it happen than would happen in, in maybe real life. But when I plumb into some of the places that I have made into this place, there's a, there are a lot of really, really strange events. It doesn't mean that there, aren't, there isn't a, a normalcy that goes on. A lot of good people just going to work and taking care of their families. But underneath it, there's a lot. I mean, I was looking at just things, crimes that, that happen in just this East Texas area. And I was, I was shocked at how many there are. And those are reported crimes, you know, some smaller crimes, you know, burglaries and things like that that may not be reported. Yeah. But I mean, when my wife worked for the uh, fire department and then the police department, we, you know, we got a lot of information, even through the fire department, you got lots of strange stories and interesting things that went on. And then, then our son, Keith, worked for uh, as a dispatcher for seven years for the, the police department. So, you know, he encountered a lot of uh, interesting uh, events as well. So there's a lot more goes on than people think. 
I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, and I can't imagine for someone like yourself to come up with the stories that you have over your career. It has to have started somewhere. So I imagine your youth is just riddled with crazy stories or maybe things you couldn't even explain. And then in some way, I feel like we all we all turn into writers in order to work these things out and to try to explain it to ourselves, right? Do you, do you have just some crazy stories? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but most of them have gone into the fiction in one form or another, not always, you know, literally. And they're not always stories that happen to me. They're sometimes stories that happen to family members or friends or associates or somebody that I heard talking about this and that. But I think that the difference on a lot of writers is that we're like magpies. You know, we pick up a little bit of this and pick up, and we carry that all back to our nest until we need it. Yeah. And it, it sometimes, uh, you know, the, the materials can fester or they can uh, become less shiny or they can become more shiny. So it just depends. But I always feel that I have a lot of stuff to dip into, you know, and I also have uh, the benefit of my parents were older uh, when I was born than a lot of parents were. My dad was 42. I think my mother was probably 38, something like that. And so they had gone through the Great Depression. My father had been born in 1909, my mother 1914, I think. So they really had gone through some real transitions in the country as I was going through transitions in the 60s and things of that nature. And I think that it gives you a different feeling. And you're also, I'm coming from a, a generation that still told stories, even my generation, but even more so their generation. And so I borrowed yeah. a lot of those stories. I, I think that uh, that's one thing is that storytelling was just a part of how people communicated, not only to tell truths, but to tell lies or to tell things that were symbolic of uh, certain things. You know, they had fears of what was the goat man down in the woods or you know, they had uh, uh, concerns about their kids. So don't go late out late at night because there's boogers in the woods and they're going to get you, you know, that sort of stuff. But all of that just wadded up together and and, and being young and discovering comic books and, and, or, and movies that were just being shown on television for the first time, because television was, you know, still new when I was when I was a kid, because it you know, it was just 51 when I was born. So by the middle fifties, you're starting to see the television boom. So I had all those influences hit me all at once. So I think I was destined to do that. My mother was a big reader. My father couldn't read or write, but my mother was a big reader. And so she had great respect for writers. So I think all of that stuff just kind of coalesced, you know. Well, and I've heard you say something that I agree with very much so is that you're one of the reasons that you like first person writing is that it's the closest thing to sort of sitting around the campfire and telling a story, which like, yeah. like I say, that, that's the origin of all this. Yeah. You know, I, I think I got that from two places specifically, you know, is that even when my father say, for example, was telling a story, it would be, if it was happened to him, of course it was you know, I, I went down and it was, and I saw and so on. And then sometimes even when he was talking about somebody else, there was a close third person to it because it was told to him directly, you know, or he had borrowed it. Yeah. So when you heard all these stories, they were much closer than, you know, third person, you know, removed or something. They were close third person or they were mostly first person. And then at the, you know, at the same time, I think another magnificent influence on me was when I was, young 10 or 11, I read uh, Princess of Mars and it was by Edgar Rice Burroughs and it was written in first person. And it was, I, be I almost believed it. You know I mean? I knew that it didn't happen, but it was so 
um, you know, easily digestible because it had two first person narrators. It had the first person was saying, I got this story, you know, from my uncle John Carter. And then he tells how his uncle told him the story. And then it goes into the uncle telling how he ended up on Mars. And it starts out like a Western and then it goes to Mars. And and I just remembered that I was so, you know, engrossed in that methodology of telling a story that it's not the only way I tell one, but it is to me still the, the best way to tell a story for me to tell a story and the best way for me to tell a story, I believe as a writer and that I hope that people will believe as a reader, because as you said, it's like sitting around the campfire. It's like, uh, you know, it's the closest thing to pure storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I was reminded the other day and I was telling somebody a, a, a story that I've want desperately to be able to work into a a story somewhere, a a book, and I haven't figured out how to do it. But it was a friend of mine from from college. Our our college campus was a long way away from where our dorms were. So when you left class, you had to walk three miles. And he was leaving class like three in the afternoon, hadn't eaten lunch. He was starving to death, walking down the streets of Boston and smelled in the air, you know, cooking, like wafting through. And he's like, oh, that I, I'm realizing how much I'm starving. His mouth started the water. He said, he just followed the scent, whatever, whatever kind of food it is, he's going to eat there at this place. Went around the corner, following this trail of, of this beautiful smell, walked right up to the door, realized it was a crematorium and ah. he'd been smelling the bodies. Uh, there's your barbecue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he might, at least he probably, he wasn't hungry the rest of the way home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you've uh, you've written a lot about uh, some specific bodies of water in, in your re- region. Yeah. Uh, the, the Sabine River is uh, right. one that's cropped up in a lot of things, and now yeah. Moon Lake is this is this a real uh, place or a made up lake? No, it's a made up lake, but it is based on a number of other uh, lakes. Not all, not only in East Texas, but and not only in even just Texas, but all over. But I had a, I had a friend. Uh, Wally Knight was telling me, and I, I can't remember if this was Sam Rayburn or, you know, I, I don't want to misquote, but but what happens, he told me about a place where was uh, they went to a lake and his, I believe it was his father, and I'm not sure about that either, but it was whoever he was with said, uh, watch this, and he walked out on the lake and he was walking on top of a building. And uh, Wally walked out too, because they realized you could walk on the edge of this building. And then he swam down and looked down below and could see the buildings of this town that had been there before the flood came over. And they've done that a lot. There've been a lot of places like that, that have towns that are still down there. A lot of times it washes them away, but sometimes they survive it. And uh, I've just always been intrigued with that idea. But I think that when, when Wally mentioned that to me, it, um, it really fired me up, you know, uh, to, want to finally do something with that. And, and I did. Yeah. And I always wondered what was going on in that town. And even though people were supposedly left in some places, I heard that there were people that didn't, you know, and whether that's true or not, it's, it made a great, you know, story idea. Cause what was it about this town then? And what are these, and water always seems to be about hidden secrets or, or about something mm. that, that you can't plumb that you can't see, but you know, there's something underneath there. And um, water's always intrigued me. And I think it's uh, because I live in East Texas, there's a lot of water. You know, there's a lot of rain. There's a lot of ponds and man-made lakes and 
you know, the Caddo Lake's the only natural lake in Texas, and that's in East Texas. But there are a lot of man-made lakes and a lot of creeks and a lot of rivers. And I think it's kind of symbolic of uh, your own bloodstream and, and this, this whole idea that this giant artery flows out to the heart of the world, which is the sea. Over a, a full career like you've had, uh, you know, are, are you able to have like some perspective and kind of look back on it and, and see it in in stages? I mean, you know, your your early work, uh, and then you've got like the series work with the Happen and Leonard. You've got now you've been doing a lot more standalones lately. I mean, do you ever sort of see the, the progression there, or are you just keeping your head down and moving forward? It's a little of both. I mean. Um... When I have my head down moving forward, I'm not always aware. But when I, I, I stop <laughs> once in a while, or I get with somebody who has read my work and is talking about it, I realize that there are stages of my career and that they don't perfectly come in boxes like nothing does, but they, they may be a box yeah. here that overflows into this one and this one backflows into that one because sometimes I revisit those old waters, you know? And uh, so I never know what, you know, is exactly this, will this happen from this year to that year? It's not exactly that clean, but there is something to be said that there was a, you know, a a 1970s period until uh, probably 81. And then there was an 81 to 85. And then there was probably a 90 period up to about 2000. And then then there's another period. and, And I think I'm going through a new one now, you know, uh, as much as you can slice and dice those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, do, do you, cons- would you call it a, a maturity of, of your writing? I mean, it's, obviously it's a different perspective comes with age. and Yeah, it's yeah. certainly an evolution. And certainly age does. The, the book I wrote, Moon Lake, could I have written it 30 years ago? Yeah, I could have. But would it have been the same? No, it wouldn't. You see, I, and I think it'd have been a good book. I mean, a lot of the books that I wrote later in life, I, I, I think I could have written earlier because uh, I kind of understood story, but there are different ways that I would have told it. And so um, it's nice to have this kind of level of, uh, I guess, maturity or evolution now to feel like I'm always moving forward. I mean, the readers can decide whether I'm moving progressively forward or negatively backward. That's, you know, if I'm moving forward, <laughs> backward, you know, and, and again, sometimes you have those overlaps. You know, I went through a period where uh, a few years ago I was writing a certain kind of short story. And then now maybe I think I'm writing another kind, but there are still overlaps, but being more mature about it does change the way you look at the work. It changes the way the work impacts you personally, because I write for me. I don't write for the audience because I don't know what the audience wants. When the book's yeah. finished, then I hope like hell somebody likes it. But when I'm writing, I've, and I've, I've said this so much to ad nauseum, I write like everybody I know is dead. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best way to do it. I, well, I, and you also, you do something that I admire so much, which is straddling the fence of genres. I mean, you're a, a Stoker award-winning horror author. You're equally well-respected in, in crime. I, you know, you've done stuff that's classified as YA. You've done steampunk. You've written about zombies, ape men, dinosaurs, <laughs> you name it. Westerns. I mean, inside, yeah, Westerns, inside, inside your mind must be like a constant, like a traveling carnival all the time. It is. It is. It is. What was I? Uh, I think it was Roger Ebert was talking about a movie, and he said it was like being 
trapped in an elevator with a circus. Well, that's kind of how my head is, is like I'm, I'm trapped in this elevator with this circus. Um, I, I don't have, tr I don't have ever have problems of having ideas. It's sometimes do you have an idea that, that's, that you really want to do at that moment. And sometimes I have an idea, but I'm, I'm just not motivated to do that one. And then other times I have an idea. I come up with some really terrific ideas that I know probably have bestseller written all over them, but they're not for me, you know, and it's not because I'm opposed to that. It's just, I know that there are certain things I would lose interest in if I started writing it, or I would lose, uh, the, the texture of the way I tell a story. And, you know, if I had a, idea like that come that was so uh intrusive to my thinking in every kind of way that i'd probably sit down and write it because i'm not against it you know it's just that i i tend to think in in a certain way knowing being better able to recognize what i will be able to write better that will actually put me into the story and uh when i kind of yeah. divorce myself from the story and divorce my life and divorce um, you know, my interests and stuff like that. It, it, it always feels a little too sterile. You know? Yeah. I, I had an idea like that that was sitting around for years. And, and when I first sort of wrote it down just in my little notebook, I, I said, boy, this, this really could be something, but this would be so much better if Megan Abbott wrote it and not me. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I had one, um, the Vinci code long before it was written, I had that same idea. I wanted to do it, but it wouldn't have been written like he wrote it. I mean, he did it his own way. Mine would have been a lot more introspective, I think, and, and would have been mm. suspenseful, but wouldn't have been like maybe as much of a thriller, um, more of a, a, a mystery and an exploration of that. I think it would have been really good, but I never could get a handle on it. And so I never tried to write it. I remember I told my wife about that. We laughed about it when it came out with Dan Brown's knob. So, you know, I talked about it long enough, but I never did it. We could have been talking to you from that's your uh, 80 foot yacht. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Big old yacht. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, I realized not too long ago that, uh, I've, I had first read your work way far earlier than I thought I had, uh, Back in the '80s, with the uh, the Shadows collection of short stories, are edited by Charles Grant. Oh, yeah, I, yeah I, I had a whole set of ten of those uh, way back in high school, and I wasn't really paying attention to the to the names in them. But I, I dug those out recently and realized that you, you had at least one, I think, a couple of different stories in there. I think I had one in Shadows. I did another one for another Charlie Grant anthology. I'd been thinking the whole time that my first exposure to you was uh, when I saw the film of Bubba Hotep, and this came about a friend of mine at work said, Hey, I have this ticket to this crazy movie on Friday. It was like an advanced screening. It was here at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And uh, he's like, Oh, Bruce yeah. Campbell's going to be there. And Don Coscarell is going to be there. You got to come yeah. check it out. So, so I, I went into seeing that movie blind. I had no idea what was going to happen. And, uh, it, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I came out of that and I was like, wait a minute, what just, what did I just see? And then that sent me down the rabbit hole uh, of, of your work. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard you, you know, people recommend where's the best place to start. And like I say, with this giant body of work, I mean, yeah. the entry point into, into your work is it's a slippery slope because if you go, you know, if you hand somebody, you know, the drive in, that's a different feel from if you hand them, you know, Savage Season. Right. It's, it's got to be tough. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people I always give them the bottoms because I think it, it probably taps a lot wider range of readers. And I say that 
just from the experience that is still in print. They teach it in high schools and colleges sometimes. So it has, I think, you know, I've, I've discovered now 20 something years after it was written that it has a, a more wide appeal. And so I usually recommend that. And the thing, the problem is what I have is that I have like this orbit around my stories. I have this central group of people that just read everything I write because they like the fact that it is so diverse. And then around that, uh, or within that small circle, there's there's the horror fans. And then around mm-hmm. that, you got the crime suspense fans, kind of. And then around that, you've got the people that only like a specific kind of crime or, spent, or suspense. And then way out here, you got the more people that really like the Outre stuff, you know, the Ned the Seals novels and things of yeah. that nature. Uh, so it's it's wonderful when I find somebody that really likes it across the board, you know. But I understand. I've never had problems with it. I totally understand that you're not going to be universally admired. And I totally understand that I am so diverse that sometimes it's hard for people to get their footing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, my uh, daughter, who's uh, I think she was 13 at the time, wrote a book report on the bottoms and she got an A on it. So uh it, yeah, yeah, it still resonates. It, <laughs> it still resonates with mm-hmm. with all generations. Oh yeah, it's still it's still my probably the best selling book I have. It just goes on and on and on. You know, it's in print at uh, uh, Vintage Books with uh, uh, Random House Knopf, and so it just goes on and on and on. And and I'm glad of that. And you know, the other books sell too, but but uh, that one it's uh, it's a mainstay. And to have readers that uh, that basically grow up with uh, with your stuff. I mean, you you have to have readers at this point who've been reading your stuff for 30 yes. years now. Oh, at least. I mean, there's some of them started when they were 12, 13 years old, you know, reading it. And I, I think another thing that's happened is that as I have been writing, when I first started writing, there wasn't the, I don't know if you'd say the climate wasn't developed well enough for people to, to cross read as much. And publishers and editors weren't, they didn't understand the, the, the mixture of ideas and things from uh, crime and suspense and horror or fantasy or whatever. And so I think we're much more open to that now too. And, and I, I see, and, and I say this with modesty, but I see my fingerprints and DNA and all kinds of stuff on television and books and movies. And I think I can say that too, because I get so many emails and messages and phone calls from people that say, Hey, I read that and I was influenced and I went on and I did this and it, you know, and a lot of them have gone on to be best-selling writers or making films. And, and so that's, that's kind of satisfying, you know, in its own way. Oh, I mean, for you got to sure. put it into perspective, but it's nice. Yeah. Well, you've been lucky enough to uh, to co-write a couple of things uh, with your kids, and my daughter, who's fifteen yeah. now, has been, has been asking me, you know, hey, Dad, we should write something together. We, I think I think really she just wants me to do all the heavy lifting so she can put her name on it. But <laughs> I mean, is this uh, is this something that you recommend, or, or am I going down a slippery slope if I write something with my daughter? Ah. <laughs> uh. I'm glad that I did. I wrote with Keith and Casey, my son and daughter. And we first did a story when Casey was eight and Keith was 12. And, uh, and what I did is that I sort of got it started. And then Keith always had a knack for being able to, to actually write, uh, you know, the story even early on, but Casey was very imaginative, had some wild ideas and they, we just all kind of meshed. And, uh, 
it was a lot of fun. I remember when we got through and we sent it in, the uh, editor said, wow, there's this one scene that's just too strong for a kid's anthology and it's where this person is hanged. And that was my daughter's part that she had, you know, come up with and written. And <laughs> I went to her and I said, well, Casey, that, I talked to him and they said that that part has got to go. And she was sitting there and she went, well, all right, but shit, it's just not the same. <laughs> 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 was eight years old. <laughs> wow. But they, you know, they've gone on, my son's gone on to write screenplays. He's had uh, two movies made, has two under option. Uh, he's written a lot of comics and short story. My daughter's written short stories of her own and she's written them with me. Uh, Keith and I also wrote a novel together and Casey and I are working on some projects right now, but we both, uh, you know, both the uh, kid and uh, kids have uh, worked with me a lot and they've worked on their own a lot too. So I enjoy it. I, I don't like collaborating in general, but I find it's a little more fun with my kids, but you know, even, even so I don't want to do it every week, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's always, it's always tricky if you have to, to give them the harsh, uh, oh, you know, break out the red pen and really, yeah. really go to town. <laughs> well, you know, they know, they know I'll do that, but I'm, I'm also fairly easy to work with. And if I, you know, with them, I, like I said, most collaborations I'm easy to work with, but I don't generally like it. Uh, film is an exception. That's kind of a collaborative art and comics to some degree, but I always tell them, look, this is what I think. And, uh, I'm the senior partner here. I'm going to have my name on it. So that's one thing I'm drawing the line on that. But most of the time, the, you know, they have the ideas and I let them lead the pack most of the time too, because I want them to learn what they've learned and that's to be confident and to do it. And uh, usually I'm just there to make suggestions on, on when I let them do that. Or when Keith and I, we, and Casey and I do the same thing is like one of us will open it up and the other one will pick up behind that and then we'll rewrite each other's work until it's it takes on a third personality. Yeah. Well, speaking of Hollywood, I, mean, I, I consider you have had a, what's a pretty darn good run. I mean, I think the, the adaptations yeah. that have been done of your work are uniformly high quality. I mean, from the Happen yeah. Leonard TV series, which I think was just fantastic, uh, Bubba Hotep, which we talked about, which is just a, just wild. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the, the creep show episodes and even uh, the, the anime, the love, death and robots, uh, which I, I right. think those have those have been really fantastic. They are great. Cold in July. They did a great job on Cold in July. Yes. Oh, man, that was such such a great film. Jim Jim Mickle did a great. And, you know, and then obviously that started the relationship that he did to happen Leonard. So that that had to have been a, right. a great. And, you know, Don Coscarelli did not only Bubba Hotep, but he did my Masters of Horror episode based on my story. Um, yeah. On and off a mountain <laughs> road. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I and and I've I've actually I used to write for, you know, just talking about film in general. I wrote for Batman the animated series and Superman uh the animated series and I wrote some a Superman I mean a Batman movie called Son of Batman and wrote some jo Jonah Hex separate of all that a little short. And mm -hmm. um you know, I've written other uh animated scripts that I got paid for that didn't get made. Uh mm -hmm. and I've also uh, written films that that didn't get made but I got paid for. And, uh, I had, uh, you know, I wrote one of the episodes of the Happen Leonard, um, season, uh, uh, the second season I've written, um, I have a script right now that I wrote it's a short, it's a short piece that's supposed to be part of an anthology series. And I won't say what it is right now until it's announced, but, uh, you know, I have that, I have a, a screenplay looks like in the, uh, 
offing to do. So to me, that's what makes life wonderful is being able to write all of these things. I prefer short stories first, novels second, and then screenplays third and comics fourth, you know, and uh, and then everything after that's nonfiction. I like nonfiction, too. I've written a lot of articles. But uh, to me, and I've even written poetry, even have a book of poetry coming out. And I'm I don't consider myself a great poet, but I think they're fun. Uh, so to me, it's, it's always something to keep me interested. And I think it's one way I've survived in my career is that I have varied interests. And so when something's not quite shaken over here in the novel, uh, you know, arena, I can go to the comics or the short stories or, or, or maybe the film scripts, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the joy. Yeah, no, that's great to to be able to hop between all those different disciplines because th- there is a, a different uh, a different style of working in in all of those things that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. In one way, there there are always stories, but there's different ways of telling stories. And and writing, uh, you know, being paid for screenplays that never get produced. That's you just summed up my entire screenwriting career right there. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's why I don't just do it. You know, I, I don't mind having cash the checks, but I I, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, have this bunch of material that I'd written and never got made. I mean, I I I think my soul would be sucked out the window. You know, but if I do it every now and again, it doesn't get made, and I've got novels and short stories and what have you, then. I don't feel so uh, disappointed, you know, and yeah. I generally don't feel disappointed, you know, because I wrote the script, but, but more like because it didn't get made is one thing, but also I was kidding with my son one time. I said, we have this one, they keep optioning it. Maybe they'll just option it forever and they'll never get made, but we'll get a check every, you know, every year. So there's yeah. that too, but there's, you know, as a creative person, for me, it's not a job, uh, strictly speaking, it's, it's nice to make money from it and it's what I do to pay the bills. But it, to me, it's the creativity that matters. I always have to be creating something. And so that's why it can be disappointing sometimes is not to see it made or, you know, brought to fruition. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I had a stack of uh, screenplays. I was I in my time doing, I wrote 17 feature length screenplays and I had them all on a shelf. And eventually like I kept seeing them out of the corner of my eye and I was like, you know what? I need to move those cause they're bumming me out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. But for for each one of these projects, I mean, you know, I've I've work in in TV every day, and and I I know what it's like when you go in with the best of intentions, and no one goes in to, to set out to make a bad thing, but no. sometimes they don't always turn out. I mean, it's got it's such a nerve wracking experience when you hand it over this thing that you've created, and you have to wait until the final product is there. It's, it's gotta be just nerve wracking, hoping that they got it right. Well, you know, a lot of screenplays I wrote and didn't get made, but the ones that I've written that got made, I think, and, and I'm happy with this stuff, but you know, I never am satisfied with it because it, it always has to change and it always has to be a little different, but I understand that. You know, I, I always told him when I was like a, a co-executive producer on happen Leonard, I said, this means I get to say whatever I want but you get to do whatever you want. So in other <laughs> words, uh, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. And I could be adamant. You know, if people don't know me, they think I'm trying to, it, have, you have to do, I'm not. I'm trying to explain to you why I believe this is true. But then once I've done that and you do otherwise, okay, I got it. I, and I move on, you know, I'm in that way, I'm easy to work with, but because I, I'm a realist. And, and also you can have the best screenplay and everybody on the same page and wanting to do exactly the same thing. And you've got this great outside shot ready and it rains. 
So you have to put it inside and you have to rethink it. You have to maybe even rewrite the entire scene and make it a different, a different scene. And you have to do that on the fly, you know, and there's a lot yeah. of stuff like that. And you, you have an actor that maybe just can't say a line. And I've been on other people's sets and you read the script. It's great, but that actor cannot say that line. They don't believe that line, you know? Right. And so in that way you have to kind of lean towards the actor because, and sometimes they're wrong. They're just, they just don't want to do it. But, more than often than not, you've picked somebody for their, what you consider their ability. And so they have to be able to feel that line is real for them. And what's, what's great on the page doesn't always play well out of the mouth. You know, that's, right. that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the interpretation that everyone wants to bring to a project too. I mean, obviously, you know, for yeah. so many years, you, you had a vision in your head of who happened Leonard were, but you also yes, they, now the, still the second you cast, yeah, and the second you cast those two actors, All right, the, the, that becomes the face to the yeah. rest of the world. And, and they're and, wonderful yeah. actors, and I, I couldn't have, oh yeah, I couldn't have been more fortunate. I, I, those guys are great. I you know, I love James; he's just a fantastic guy, and I know him a little better than Michael. Uh, but the, yeah, I couldn't have been more fortunate to have those actors that you know that. And and that means all of the actors like Bill Sage and Neil Sandilands and Jeff Pope, you know, and uh, uh, Doug Griffin. And I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many of them. But I was very fortunate to have all these really, really Christina Hendricks, of course. I was yeah. really fortunate to have all these great actors doing that and watching them interpret your story, even though it wasn't my script in this case. It was uh, Nick Dimitri a lot and, and Jim Mickelson and some others. It um it was fantastic. It was really fantastic to see them take that script and make it theirs and, and, and to see how they would change certain things. And, and most of the time you, you knew why they were changing it at that moment in time. Uh, another yeah. day that scene might've played just as it was, but because of the, the, the sort of the energy you get from the other actors on a particular moment or a particular day, that's going to dictate, your performance in the same way that our conversation is dictated by how the other person asks you a question or responds to a question. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I was surprised that you didn't uh, go full Stan Lee and you're not uh, way in the background of, of every episode or, or all these movies. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in uh, an episode of happen Leonard. I actually am. And, uh, and Casey's in two and uh, yeah. I'm in, uh, I'm in cold in July. So I mean, I am right, in right. those two. I'm in the back. Yeah, I'm in the background of both of those. So I wasn't in every episode of Happen Leonard, but I, I was in the <laughs> first season. Uh, I was in the cafeteria or the or the, or the cafe rather, uh, sitting at a booth with Casey, and nice. they had her hair all done up in a little eighty style thing. It was kind of funny, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I did do that. And I think Keith was filmed for something, but they couldn't use him or something. I maybe I think that was cold in July, but I may have that wrong, but. You know, it's just one of those uh, those things. That's how it is. I, I mean, the I, my son wrote a, a a film called The Pale Door, and I was on the set. I'm not in that one either, <laughs> which you know, which suits me. He he was one of the co-writers, you know, and so uh, and then he wrote another one that that uh, you know I don't have a part in either, and one of the, and that one was based on a story of mine. So there you go. <laughs> no respect. <laughs>
Well, as you uh, move into, uh, you know, let's say elder statesman status, uh, I've, I've seen you give some very straightforward and practical writing advice that I really love. And you're very kind of no bullshit about it. Uh, has anyone ever tried to lure you into teaching writing? I have taught writing. I, I taught at the Stephen F. Austin State University. In fact, I was, I'm, I'm probably still literally speaking, a writer in residence. And I was a writer in residence there uh, actively for about eight years. And wow. uh, I taught at least one semester. And sometimes I would teach two or I would teach a summer semester, a combination, you know. So I, I have done that. And I, I've, of course, gone to, to give talks and lectures and things like that when people have asked me to. And uh, and paid me. <laughs> and, and the university <laughs> was great fun. I really enjoyed it. I like teaching. I've always felt that if I weren't a writer, I'd have probably been a teacher. Yeah. I mean, do you think that your sort of simple and straightforward approach to writing is indicative of, of uh, the, the Texan in you? Probably so. I think that's a lot of it. And, uh, um, you know, I only know what works for me, but that's probably more like my dad. I probably got that kind of approach to it. And I would also always hate for somebody especially when screenplays they'd come in as soon as they go oh we read it we loved it and you're you're, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop you know yeah they always <laughs> love it and i actually have you know and not lost my temper but lost my patience a couple i said look let's let's just cut through this shit what is the butt and they would always yeah. have a butt you know and so we get right to it because i you know i you get older too you know if they don't want to do it that's fine you know goodbye i don't i don't need your money and, and, yeah. and i'm just not gonna I'm not going to go through all these song and dances and, and it just, I'm just, I'm past it. You know, I'm past it. I'm, I'm over it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, one of my favorite things is uh, I love seeing old photos of you uh, back in the day. You got the long hair and, uh, yeah. you know, I think reading wow. your work, it should not surprise anybody that maybe there's a little bit of an ex hippie uh, living in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, it isn't, I think, I think we were alternative lifestyle more than there was hippie in it because I don't know what that is. You know, there, there seems to be these, everybody's a hippies, the guys walking around, Hey man. And they're, you know, they're doped up and got beads on. And, uh, you know, it was a lot more complex than that. And actually those of us, then we called ourselves freaks and that's because other people, we just claimed that title for ourselves to, uh, you know, because there was so much, any establishment among us, but there was also this negative response to who we were or who they thought we were. Like I always thought right. it was interesting. I never smoked dope. I don't drink. I was, I didn't fit any of those, uh, you know, outlines that they had for me, you know, and, uh, um, but I was different in my thinking and my philosophies and, and things of that nature. And so there were a lot of us that were going different paths. I mean, Manson had long hair, but he damn sure wouldn't go in where I was going. Right. So, <laughs> Right. Well, and I think, you know, that sort of liberal streak and, and that, that different way of thinking, it absolutely shows up on the page. I mean, I, I think we do yeah. get get a real sense of the man behind the, the keyboard in, in your work. You don't shy away from social issues. You write a lot about racism and, you know, right. you, you tackle these things uh, straight on uh, without shying away from it in the frame of these entertaining stories. It's, it's pretty impressive how you, you can get that second layer in there. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, but, but even then I think people always have to understand that everything that you write is not literal and that, right. uh, you know, some people are offended by just the subject matter 
and it's not really it's not really the subject matter and it's not really certain words that offend you it's the context it's the context and the meaning of what it is you're trying to do i'll tell you this this morning i went to my uh uh fan page and and there was a private message and i won't say who i don't embarrassing but i was written it was written to me and said you know you don't know this but we met before and uh, the person was uh was using a different sexuality at that time, but things had changed. And this person mm-hmm. said that your books and this conversation you had with me has, you know, even though I'm transgender, not gay, like Leonard, it, this sort of straightforward where it's just a person that happens to have a different, you know, sexuality um, really impressed me and really impacted me and, you know, made me want to write. And like, like I said, you're what's what we need. We need these voices. We need, other voices, but we don't need segregated voices. We don't need just black writers or white writers or women writers or transgender writers or gay writers. You need some of that for sure that are just addressing that particular thing. But for really to understand each other, we have to integrate ideas. Men have to do their best to write about women. And in many ways, uh, and blacks have to do their best to write about white and white, black, you know, we all need to cross Cross the uh, the barriers, so to speak, and and at the yeah. bottom of it all, though we have we may not get all of it right. At the bottom of it all, we're all very more similar than we're different. We're all human beings. We all have the same needs, the same emotions, and and and, and such and such. You know, and uh, when, when I write about, um, you know, a lot of the characters I write about, they're all blue collar people that just want to take care of their family and do it the best they can. And, and really a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world is hard for them to be involved with because they're so focused on just making sure that the kids eat, that the kids get to go to school. Maybe they got money for college and, you know, or trade school or whatever it is that, that they're directed to. So to me, I find that we're far more alike than we are different. And I think you have to start from that particular viewpoint. Absolutely. Well, uh, Joe, I want to thank you so much for uh, for taking thank all the you. time today. Uh, congratulations on, on Moon Lake. Uh, you know, if there's any one writer who I will gladly just go ahead and build more bookshelves for, it's you. So, uh, yeah, don't don't slow down. Let's, let's skip the idea of slowing down. We we need more of your books. And every time a new one comes out, it it, it makes me look forward to it. So uh, keep on thank keeping you. on, sir. Thank you, buddy. See you next time. I want to thank Joe for giving me so much of his time and, of course, thank him for all the great books over the years. There is no other writer I can recommend higher. Well, we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.